Well, let's continue um, with our with our defining what preaching is. We, we've been describing preaching. We're going to continue to do that. If you if you go to your Google Classroom, you see I uploaded a document um, of the uses of K. Russo in the New Testament. Um, I'll, I'll just go ahead and put this on your screen so you can see it. Can you see that or no? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, and then I, so this is a this is a, a document that I created um, that I, I gave to you all. Uh, I think this is a compelling um, case for the gospel-centered nature of New Testament preaching. Um, so I, I did a search for every use of Kerusto where there was a direct object, right? So you know the content of what's being preached. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't just. Tell, it's not. It's not every use of K. Russo in the New Testament, but it is every use of K. Russo where there's a clear direct object. Uh, and I just wanted to quickly go through this with you. We're not going to look at all of these in detail, but we are going to look at these individually. And I think the the cumulative effect of this. Um, demonstrates the gospel-centered nature of preaching. That, that what we're preaching is not ourselves, what we're preaching is not law, what we're preaching is not um, man's wisdom, but what we're preaching is the gospel. Um, and I think there's about 60 of these references. I think, I think there's 64 uses of K. Russo with a direct object in the New Testament, and I think I included 60 of them. There were some that it was less than clear exactly what it's in reference to, I think I, I I left out four, um, but those weren't those were four that it was just wasn't exactly clear what was going on in the text, so that's why I didn't include it. Um, but starting with Jesus, Jesus is the example. He goes throughout all Galilee, and when he was in the synagogues, he was proclaiming. That's the word for Caruso. He was preaching, and what he was preaching was the gospel of the kingdom. The content of his preaching was the gospel as he was going from one synagogue to the next and the next and the next. Um, again, uh, Jesus says the same in Matthew 9. This, is, this seems to be a, a, a parallel statement in Matthew um, with the Sermon on the Mount being in between these two. But Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And then when he says to his disciples in Matthew 10, he asks them to preach, to proclaim the gospel, or the, sorry, the kingdom of heaven, which I, I think we can say, given you know, the gospel of the kingdom and the other two uses here, we can say you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand is, is shorthand for the gospel. Christ, the king, has come. He is coming. God is making all things right again. Um, <clears throat> then Matthew 24, uh, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Um, then this is Matthew 26, 13. You remember the context of that? You can pull that up in the Bible here. This is the, uh, the story of 26, 14. Sorry. Yeah, 13. This is the story of the woman who pours the, pours the ointment uh, on Jesus. 
for this could have been sold, this is Judas's objection, this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to you. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel, this gospel is proclaimed, this gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So again, what's being preached is the gospel. Uh, going to the gospel of Mark, John, once again, appears preaching, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's preaching for the opportunity for forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel. Um, then he preaches uh, in Mark 1, 7, after me comes he who is mightier than I. As, I mean, the word gospel isn't used there, but the one who is mightier than him is Jesus, right? Yeah, so what he's preaching is Jesus is coming. He's preaching Christ. Um, Mark 1, 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He was preaching the gospel is what he was doing. Uh, Mark 5, 20, uh, he went away and began to preach how much Jesus had done for him. This is the story. Pull it up here. Uh, Demon-possessed man. The demon is going to the pigs. Jesus goes in the boats. And he did not permit him, but said to him, um, he, he did not permit him to, to, tell, to tell more. He said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. He tells him to tell his friends and his family how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim. And he didn't do it just to his friends and family, right? How much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And the word gospel isn't used here, but I think I think we can make an implication. You know, what is preached here is what Christ has done, uh, what Christ has done for him. So in, in, in our preaching also, we preach what Christ has done for us. That's the preaching of the gospel. Um, ooh, I forgot to highlight this. Let me do that. Um, Mark 6, 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. Mark 13, 10, the gospel must be preached, proclaimed to all nations. Mark 14, 9, and truly I say to, to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done uh, will be told in memory of her. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke 3, 3. Again, going back to John the Baptist. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This one's interesting. When Jesus reads the scroll, when he reads the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue, um, the word Keruso is used twice. And look at, look at all of the direct objects of Keruso. It's the good news to the poor. Liberty to the captive, recovering sight to the blind, and the year of the Lord's favor, uh, the year of jubilee. All of that is different descriptions of the gospel, of what happens uh, through the gospel through Christ. Luke 8, 1. 
Um, he went preaching, proclaiming, and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke 8, 39. Uh, he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Again, the story of Jesus healing the man. Uh, he sent them out to preach, his disciples, the apostles, to preach, to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal. Um, Luke 24, 47. Uh, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. We move to Acts, and we find the exact, the exact same pattern continues outside of the Gospels and into Acts. Uh, Acts 8, 5, Philip preached, what, what was the content of his preaching? What was the direct object? The Christ. He preached to them the Messiah. So Jesus is the content of Philip's preaching. Uh, Acts 9, 20. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. Paul, who is Paul proclaiming? He's proclaiming Christ. Once again, Christ Jesus is the subject of the preaching. Uh, Acts 10, 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged of the living and the dead. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Um, Acts 15, 21. For from ancient generations, now this one I have highlighted uh, in a darker color because I think I think this is like an ironic use of preaching. So this is not an example in which Christ is preached, but I think it's an ironic use of preaching, and it um, it, it serves as a foil to gospel-centered preaching. Um, so in verses, Christ who is proclaimed, Christ who I think we can say is the is the new Moses, the foil of Moses in Acts five and uh, Acts nine. Um, Moses has been proclaimed. Moses has been preached in every synagogue uh, over and against Christ being preached by Jesus and his disciples, those who follow him. Um, Acts 19.13 Then some took irritant, Jewish exorcist, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had an evil spirit, saying, I adjourn you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. So even in these false teachers casting out the demons, we, we, we find a theology of Paul's preaching. The content of Paul's preaching is Jesus. Uh, Acts 20, uh, 25. And now behold, I know that none of, you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face. He's, he's proclaiming the coming kingdom of the Messiah, or the existing kingdom, even we could say. And then it, it ends with Paul under house arrest, right? And he's still preaching, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And teaching, and the content of his teaching is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, uh, I think we, we have another ironic use Russo. So the first one was by uh, relig Jewish religious leaders who are preaching Moses. Now we have um, kind of a polemic um, against certain people who are preaching against stealing, but yet they steal. It's the, the irony of they're not preaching the gospel, they're only preaching law, 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 and yet they're guilty of the law themselves. Um, Romans 10, 8. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouths and in your hearts. That is the word of faith, the gospel that we proclaim. Uh, Romans 10, uh, 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they, 
and how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Actually, I think um, there are some translations. The ESV, I'm not totally sold on the way the ESV translates it. I think we can faithfully say, how will they believe the one whom they have not heard? And this is, that's a significant theological point. Um, it's very similar to Ephesians 11, uh, verse 20, I think, or is it verse 15, that Christ came and preached to you who were far off and you who were near. Uh, it could be that it's the content of the preaching, or it could be the one who's preaching. Right? The, the problem is that they have not heard, not just heard about Christ, but they haven't heard Christ himself. Christ has not preached to them. And how they will they hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach, what? The good news, the gospel. Um, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 1 earlier. It's They're not preaching wisdom. They're not preaching signs. They're instead preaching Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and followers and Gentiles. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? Moving to 2 Corinthians. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we preach among you. So the content, once again, of their preaching is Christ. Uh, what we proclaim, this is interesting, what we preach is not ourselves. They don't preach about themselves. They don't preach about their ministry. They don't preach about their problems, their woes. The content of the preaching, the subject of preaching is not us. It's not the preacher. It's Christ. Christ is the content. Christ is the subject of the preaching. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.4, For if someone comes and proclaims or preaches another Jesus, then we have another use of K. Russo. We are proclaiming, the one we are proclaiming. So again, Jesus is the content of preaching. So there's a, a false Jesus, that's the content of some preaching, and then the true Jesus, who is the content of other preaching. Galatians 2.2, 2. Um, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running in vain or laboring in vain. Then we get another ironic use in Galatians 5.1. So again, the, the Jewish religious leaders who are not preaching Christ, they are preaching circumcision. Right? The content of their preaching is law, 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 not gospel. It's you must do more to inherit eternal life. Uh, Philippians 1.15, it's kind of like an ironic use in some senses, but the, the content of the preaching is still Christ. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Uh, Colossians 1.23, um, the content of the preaching here is the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Um, Paul talks about his ministry to the Thessalonians. He, he proclaimed, he preached to them the gospel of God. First uh, Timothy 3.16 with the, the confession, the creed. Um, he, we have some verbs here, he was manifested. He was vindicated, and he was preached. So the content, again, of the preaching is Jesus Christ. Um, Philippians 4.2, it's preach the word. So I think, I think we can make a case that the word is Christ, because Christ is the living word. It's not just the written word, but the living word. 
But even if it's not, it's the word which is gospel-centered, the word which is able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. The word that revolves around and centers around Christ, that's what Paul commands Timothy to preach, to proclaim. Then the last use is in Revelation 5, too. Um, the preaching, the proclaiming of who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And the answer to that is the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered. The, the crying out who is able to, that the gives, gives room for the gospel, gives room for the answer of the line of the tribe of Judah. Um, and so you should you should have that document uh, in your Google Classroom. Do you do you see that there or no? If you don't, I can upload that for you guys. It's there. Okay. Good. So. So what I hope you see from that is that New Testament preaching, consistently the content of it is Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's not, it's not our own ideas. It's not law. It's not, um, it's not our wisdom. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's, there's a gospelness to the revelation. Um, if we can look at a couple other texts, look at uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Uh, okay, Russo isn't used here, but it does tell us something about the, the, the climax of revelation. And this tells us something about the content of preaching. Uh, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Right? So there's, um, there's something that happened at uh, a time in distant past, right? And, and throughout different stages of history in a variety of ways, and not directly to us, but to our fathers, right? In all of this, there's distance being created between the revelation under the Old Covenant. Uh, versus, in these last days, he has spoken to us in Huyo. In so, what, what do you notice? You can't translate. The ESV translated it by his son, which is true. It's not just any old son. But do you, what do you notice about the original here? In Huyo. What's that? What's missing? There's something missing. Yeah, there's no his. There's no altos, right? <clears throat> um, so I, I get what they're saying. It, the point, you know, the point is that it's not just any old son; it's the son of God. But, but, but it doesn't say in his son. 
In fact, it, it's also, it's missing the article as well. You notice that? It's in huio. It's not in to huio, it's in huio. In not a son, like any old son, like, like, like a, a lack of definiteness, but the lack of the article can also communicate the qualitative nature of the noun. So, so I, think, I think what he's saying is he's not speaking in the son or in his son, but in a son kind of way, I think is how we can translate it. In these last days, he has spoken to us in a son way. He, he's specifying that it's, it's through, <clears throat> it is in, in a, the gospel-centered nature, really, is what he's saying of this revelation. That, of course, all, all previous revelation was about the Son, but the new covenant revelation is more explicitly in a Son kind of way. It's the qualitative nature of the revelation is that it's about Christ. It's a qualitative difference in the way God is speaking now in how God was speaking then. Uh, it's, it's, it stresses the unique revelatory quality of God's revelation in the new covenant and the gospel-centered nature of that revelation. And we see it, we've seen this already in our Ephesians class, look at Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. We look at it briefly again to refresh our, our memory. Paul talks about the mystery that was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And there's a gospel-centered nature to the revelation that Paul has received so that he can understand the previous revelation in light of the new son way of speaking, the direct in a son way that God is now speaking to authoritatively in the new covenant. Um, remember 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 also. Uh, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They, they wanted to understand the, what they were writing about the Christ who was to come. They wanted to understand, but, but like Daniel, who needed the interpretation, like Zechariah, who needed the interpretation, they eventually realized that it was revealed to them they're not serving themselves but you. They were writing their documents, not for themselves, but they were writing their documents for people who would one day have the fullest revelation in Christ. The climax of God's revelatory activity uh, in history, his revelatory actions and interpretation of those actions in Christ. And uh, Hebrews 11, 39 through 40 is, um, I just love the way this is worded. We think about that Old Testament revelation. And all these, and all these people, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So, so as 
as these New Testament preachers are reading the Old Testament, they're preaching the Old Testament, they're doing so through a Christ-centered lens because they understand that it was all pointing towards the final uh, redemptive act of God or the climactic redemptive act of God in history in Christ. So I think I think we can say, therefore, given all of that, preaching, especially New Covenant preaching, has a unique quality of gospel-centeredness. Preaching, especially New Covenant preaching, has a unique quality of gospel centeredness. It's a unique quality of gospel centeredness. And we spent a long time talking about the importance of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel, but but just to remind ourselves, look look again at Romans 115. Who does who does Paul preach the gospel to? The saints in Rome. Yeah. He preaches it to the believers. He preaches the gospel to believers, not just unbelievers, but he preaches it to believers. Why, why do believers need the gospel? Why do believers need the gospel? That's right. The gospel not only brings about justification, but it brings about sanctification. That's exactly right. Um, an, an interesting text. Go turn with me to Judges. Chapter 2. Remember what the problem was. Uh, actually, here, I can put it on the screen here for you also. The problem for the Israelites, when, when, as they, uh, even as they lived in the promised land, was that they did not pass along what God had done from one generation to the next. Um, so we're looking at verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So there's a generation that died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That is an interesting intertextual connection. Um, what does this sound like? Someone arose who did not know what had come before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, I think I think it's referencing Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph, right, from Exodus one. Uh, I I think there's a sense in which there's a hint here already of Israel becoming just like Egypt. Um, but the next generation, because they did not remember, because the gospel was not preached from um, 
they did not preach the gospel to themselves. They did not preach the gospel to their children. There arose a whole generation that did not know the Lord, knew what he had done. Um, Colossians 3.16, that, that word of Christ, the gospel, right? It, it's a command to let the gospel dwell in us richly. The gospel must dwell in us richly. And uh, this gospel that is the power of God to save, is, it's the power of God still. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel doesn't cease to be the power of God once we're converted. The gospel is the power of God even to us who are being saved. And, and always in our obedience, we continue to look back to the gospel. If you look at Galatians 2.14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So when, when Paul confronts Peter for not eating with Gentiles, he says this is not in line with the gospel. But Peter's problem was that he forgot the gospel. When Peter disobeyed, he disobeyed because he forgot what God had done for him in Christ, what God had done for all these believers in Christ. And he forgot that God had made a single family of God that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. So, so if, we're, <clears throat> if we're preaching the gospel, if the gospel is the content of our preaching, does that mean we don't make application? Does that mean we don't make specific application? Go ahead and talk to the person next to you about that. How does application, calls to obey, fit into this? Go ahead and talk to the person next to you. Okay, so is there room for application then if if what we're talking about is preaching, if the content of our preaching is the gospel, is there room for application? If we were kind of talking when you uh, give news, it always has implications. Like yeah. when Faisal said the news about, like, the uh, good news about the war, mm -hmm. if then we were all still, like, ancient, like, news has implications and I feel like the person proclaiming it can say that like, the war's done so we can rejoice or whatever good yeah I think so good uh, I any think other ideas uh, so the gospel is uh, so it's general but it has to be played out uh, in every area of our lives so that's why mm -hmm. we need an application we need to apply yeah, it in every area so you're just talking about applying the gospel, right? Good. Yeah, th this is, yeah, I hope I hope you're seeing why we spent so much time on <laughs> terminatus class, gospel-centered class, so much time on talking about gospel centrality. This is where the rubber meets the road. This, this is where it becomes very practical. I've known a lot of people who have read who have even read to me, you know, the first Corinthians text we all we already read. Paul says that what he decides to know nothing among them except Christ. And then when they preach it to Christians, it's as if 
they've decided to not know Christ. They've decided to only know law. <laughs> I, th- I think I think the 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 Galatians two text is very interesting because what Paul confronts Peter with is that his life is not in step with the truth of the gospel. His life is not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's what he confronts him with. He confronts him by saying, you're not living like the gospel is true. We must live like the gospel is true because it is true. And Christians can forget the gospel is true. And when Christians forget the gospel is true, when Christians forget that we have died to sin, when Christians forget that we have been resurrected to new life, when Christians forget that we are no longer slaves of Satan, but we are slaves of Christ, we begin to not live in step with the truths of the gospel. Or what Paul says in Ephesians 4, that we looked at uh, pretty extensively. He talks about, when, when Paul confronts the the unholy deeds of these Gentiles. He says that it's not the way you learned Christ. You learned the Messiah. You learned the gospel. You learned Jesus. And when you learned Jesus, you heard to put off your old self, to be renewed and to put on your new self. Now, are those things the gospel? Is the gospel put off your old self, be renewed, and put on the new self? Is that the gospel? No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is the truth is in Jesus. It's learning Christ. It's learning a person. But the gospel has certain implications. I love that word implications. So what we have to say is that there is a gospel message, right? There is a gospel message, and we are to proclaim that. But there are also gospel implications. Okay. There are also gospel implications. Now, what we can't do is mix the two up. We cannot mix up law and gospel. Once we mix up law and gospel, we we lose the gospel. But to faithfully preach the gospel is to faithfully remind people of what it looks like to live in light of the gospel. I mean, that's what Paul does in his letters, right? He explains the gospel and then shows what it means to live in light of the gospel. And here, here's a question that's obvious. It's obvious. You, you know what the answer is. But I think we often don't live like it's true. Okay, I want you to talk about... I want you to talk about this question with the person next to you. Um, what has the power to transform? Gospel message or gospel implications? Now we know what the answer is, right? What's the answer? Do we, what is the power to transform? Gospel message or gospel implications? The message. The message is exactly right. 
Gospel implications are not the power of God to salvation. The gospel message is. Law does not have the power to transform. Gospel has the power to transform. But do we forget that? We forget that in our own lives, in the lives of our families, and when we preach. I want you to talk to the person next to you. When we preach, if we for if we either we can do we can make two errors here. One, we can forget that gospel message and implication are different. Right? They're not the same. But we can also forget that implication can't transform. Implication can't transform. I want to talk to the person next to you about what happens when we forget those two things in our preaching specifically. What what happens when we forget those two things in our preaching? Talk to the person next to you about that. Okay, so so what happens if we forget these two things in our preaching? What What did your groups what did your group say? doesn't even make sense. Like it needs a message to go with it. Good, I like that. That's exactly right. Good, what else? What was that? A message uh, that doesn't have uh, an implication. Implications. It's just uh, information. It's just information. Good. Good. There will be no transformation in most cases. There will be no transformation what? There is no transformation. If we miss one of them, if we do not... Uh, there's no transformation. There's, there is no transformation without both. That's what you're saying, right? Is that what you're saying? We need both to have transformation? Yeah, yeah. We, do, uh, we need both of them. In the right uh, way, as presented in the language. Does anyone disagree with that? I might think, like, just if someone hasn't given the right implications, but they truly believe, I still think they're safe. They're still regenerated, even if they're not living out what that should look like right 
Yeah, so if, if what we mean by that is you can't become a Christian without hearing the implications, then, then no. Good. Uh, so you can see my screen again when I'm highlighting here. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so we have to keep these distinct in our minds. Gospel message and gospel implications. We have to keep them separate. We have to keep law and gospel as separate things. If we, if we think law is gospel or gospel is law or preach them in such a way, we, we, we create either legalists or antinomians, like, like Mikey said. Hey, you know, here, here's a question. Um, just, we talked about this before. It's just kind of refreshing our memories. Does, does the gospel ever call us to obey? In what sense are we called to? What does it mean to obey the gospel? So Paul uses that phrase in Romans one, right, to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. So obedience to the gospel means believing the gospel. That's right. Yeah. It means stopping, stopping trusting yourself and trusting only in Christ. But, but the gospel never makes demands on us. The gospel, the gospel offers the free gift and that only. But in our obedience, we always look back to the gospel. Um, if the gospel becomes a call to do and not a call to believe, then we replace the work of Christ with our own works. Right? Um, but well, we must keep these together in our proclamation. We must keep these separate. Right? We cannot, we cannot mix them. We must, we must keep them separate, but we must always have them together. Why is that? Um, because Paul does, right? <laughs> because Paul does. And when Paul confronts Peter in Galatians 2, he says, you're not remembering the gospel. Your problem is you're not remembering the gospel. Now let me show you what a life that remembers the gospel looks like. So let me ask this. Why Why do you think, I mean, I, I think it's a pretty evident trend that the gospel is often forgotten in preaching. The gospel is often forgotten in preaching, even in Protestant churches. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think the gospel is often forgotten in preaching? I feel like we have a tendency to be man-centered instead of God-centered. And if we're man-centered, we're going to talk about our actions instead of what God has done. Good. What else?
category which uh, we are served, we tend to uh, run this in some way that we uh, you know, try to work out and to please get with our we try to work out what, sorry? We try to please get with our works and like a legalistic kind of approach. Yeah, good. We try to please God with our works. I, now, I think I think the biggest reason is because we're not convinced that the gospel sanctifies. We're not convinced the gospel sanctifies. Or we can say we're not convinced the gospel we're not convinced of that. The gospel is still the power of God. We're not convinced the gospel is what changes hearts and what changes lives. And, and we be, become convinced that scolding will do it. That yelling will do it. That law will do it. That just Telling people where they mess up will do it, or like like that video we saw that Dan is the worst, and if we do some public shaming, then Dan will get better, right? Like that—that's what we become convinced of that. Because sanctification, sanctification takes a long time. We don't see the results that we want in the time that we want it. It's easy to stop preaching the gospel and start preaching law like it is the gospel. Or pre preaching law and putting our faith in law, that that is what will transform people's lives when it's not. Now, um, so sometimes people accuse gospel-centered preaching as going easy on sin. Right? You're you're not you're not hitting sin with full force. You're not you're you're not going hard on sin. You're going light on sin. You're going easy on sin. And I say it's the opposite. The opposite is true. I, I think that gospel-centered preaching goes hard against sin. And the reason for that is it confronts sin with the only thing that has the power to transform minds. And it doesn't yell. It doesn't scold. It doesn't belittle in the way that law-centered preaching does. But it actually brings the only medicine that can cure the sickness. It doesn't do it. Law only reveals the sickness more and more and more, and it does not provide the cure. And that, the effect on our preaching is that people are not transformed. The gospel is forgotten, and people become legalists. People begin trusting in their own works, not the work of Christ. So, given all that, everything we've said, we're going to take a break, 10-minute break. But before we do, I'm going to ask you one question. We'll come back, try to answer that. Okay. What is preaching? What is preaching? Given all that we've said about faithfulness, success, gospel centrality, gospel implications, gospel message, all of that, been working towards a definition. We've been describing preaching, but we've not defined preaching yet. So, so given everything given everything that we've said, what is preaching? 
What is preaching? We should try to write down a definition of preaching given the Greek words we looked at that describe preaching, in the gospel sense of nature, preaching, gospel implications, gospel message, all of that that we've said so far. What should we try to write down a definition of preaching? Talk about it with people, the people in your group. Okay, so so let's start with this. Is uh, sorry, just a second. Is your definition different? Is your definition different than before, <laughs> or not? Let's, let's start with that. Did anyone say like, "Yep, I had the same definition that I had before. That's what I have now." Did any, anyone say that? Okay, good. That, that that validates my job. That gives me a, a right to my job, so that's good. It makes me happy. Uh, <laughs> good. So, so if it's different, I don't want to start with a definition yet, or hearing your definitions. I want to hear what about it is different. Well, what did you decide to change, or what did you decide to add? What did you decide to subtract? Uh, so that, I'd love to hear from each group. What did you decide to change about your definition? And then we'll hear the different definitions. I added to my definition that it's a public proclamation, so it's not just one-on-one -on -one teaching someone yeah. the gospel. Good, that's exactly right. Yeah, discipleship and, and preaching are different things. Good. What else? Uh, preaching is the expounding of the good news uh, for transformation. Yeah, but I don't want to hear your definition yet. I want to hear what did you change? Like if if your definition is different than your definition before, what did you did you add something? Did you subtract something? What did you change about it? Is what I'm, I'm interested in first. We, we add uh, the implication. Implication. Okay. Good. What else? Is there one group in the back, or is there two groups? Uh, sorry, is there is there two or three groups in the, in the back row? We, we can also add our dependence on the Spirit for the okay. transformation. And then uh, the other group, what did you, did you add anything, did you subtract anything? What, what changed from your first definition? I mean, there's a lot of ways we could define this. This here's a, I'm going to give you guys a simple definition. I mean, there, we could add two definitions all day long, right? Um, and subtract, go back and forth. But I think this is a faithful definition. Um, and again, I, I, I'm relying heavily on Jeff Perswell. I don't think this is the exact definition. I think it's a little bit changed, but I don't remember exactly how it is. Uh, the public proclamation of God, God's written word 
by an appointed messenger to make known the gospel of Christ and its implications for all people. The public proclamation of God's written word by an appointed messenger to make known the gospel of Christ and its implications for all people. I mean, I guess we, you know, we could add, we're saying the public proclamation of God's written word by an appointed messenger to make known and urge people to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to and its implications for all people by the power of the Spirit. We could add that if we want to. But I think this summarizes well everything we've talked about so far. Um, so let's just think briefly about this definition. Um, it's, it's public, right? We, we made a big deal about K. Russo, the Herald, how that's public. It's, it's for God's people. It's meant to be heard. It's meant to be contained. It's meant to be publicly proclaimed. It's a proclamation also. It's not, I'm not giving my opinion, my thoughts, my advice. I'm proclaiming uh, the idea of appointed messengers. That comes from the idea of herald, but it, it comes with the idea of calling being set apart like Paul was for the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, uh, an encouraging an encouraging quote by Spurgeon, thinking about calling, is, is this. I am as called to preach as Paul was. I am as called to preach as Paul was. Doesn't, of course, it doesn't mean that you're going to be as significant as Paul. <laughs> but it... it it does mean that Paul was no less called by God than we are to preach. He was no less appointed by God than we are to preach. And of course, separating the gospel message from gospel implications. Sorry, was there a comment there? Did someone want to say something? I would, uh, just kind of thinking... My first thought on that is like Paul was verbally called by God um, like it just seems kind of like to say ordination of elders today is the same as like apostleship in that day I know Spurgeon said it I don't think I would feel bold enough to say that <laughs> yeah I think um, I think that in our day, the the ordination, um, the appointing of certain people, the public laying on of hands of those people, so that they're they're sent out by a denomination. Um, the the public approval of leadership uh, seems to be um, when when Paul tells Timothy to remember the gift that was given to him by the laying on of hands. Or in Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by the church, um, that, that public recognition of the church becomes that same 
it carries with itself the same weight as the verbal calling of Christ, I think. Um, of course, there are going to be people who are deceivers, right? There are people who are um, less than truthful, less than honest, and they end up falling away. But I do think for the most part we can say that that as the church affirms certain men in their giftings and qualifications, we, we, we hear and we feel also the affirmation of Christ himself through the church, speaking through the church and appointing certain men to that office as pastor or preacher. You can talk more about that in your pastoral ministry classes, I'm sure, but, but, but Spurgeon is not talking about um, questioning calling. But what he is saying is that every person who is truly called to preach, every, every person who is truly called to pastor is just as called. There's no people who are more or less called. <laughs> there can be more or less confidence in our calling, more or less feeling of deserving our calling, but there's no more or less degree of calling or quality of calling. We're just as called to preach as, as the next guy. But I feel what you're saying too. Any questions on that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have two questions. The first one is, what is our place for uh, judgment when we preach the gospel? And what is our place for judgment? You mean, are you asking, do we have a right to judge people? Yeah, my is that what you're asking? Yeah, my own thought is, judgment is a part of the preaching the gospel. How do you think about that? Some people think that uh, preaching the judgment is a part of the gospel. And they quote uh, John 3. And they said, um, if, you are, if you accept this, uh, you will be saved. Uh, but if you don't accept this, you will judge today. So you're asking, should we judge others or should we bring to bear the condemnation of the law? What, what are you asking? Condemnation of the law. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we're going to talk about, um, we're going to take the ideas we talked about in hermeneutics with law gospel distinction and the purpose of the second use of the law. Um, but I, I do think that part of what we do as preachers um, in talking about the implications of the gospel, uh, in talking about law, is we do allow the law to have its full effect uh, in condemning people uh, and driving them to the gospel. I do think that we do that. But that, but that is not the gospel. The, 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 um, the con condemnation for us not obeying is not the gospel. It leads us to the gospel and shows us our need for the gospel. It causes us to run and fly to the gospel to find assurance in the gospel. But, but judgment is not the gospel. Unless it's the judgment that Christ received in our stead. But yeah, I, I, do, think, I do think that, that part of faithful preaching includes bringing all aspects of the law to bear on people's lives. Including feeling the, con the condemning effects of the law. My second question is, uh, it's, it's kind of a silly question, but some churches here, uh, I think it's, it's uh, global, uh, some, some churches, even in different parts of Italy, uh, the, the countries, they just present uh, 
preaching in TV as a Sunday service program. How do you think, how do you feel about that? They present preaching as a Sunday service, is that what you said? In TV, television. Yeah, watching TV? Yeah. Instead of going to the service? Not going, but um, there is some kind of church. And one church from one country, he preached in different countries by the television, by online mm -hmm. service. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that um, shortly, but but in short, I, I, knowing that we're going to get to it more later, um, I mean, our, my country has the same thing. This is not an Ethiopian thing. This is a worldwide thing. Um, I'm, not, I'm not critiquing an Ethiopian culture. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a, a culture of convenience or a culture of celebrity. Um, I think that the intended effects of preaching uh, are not fully felt when you are not part of the gathered congregation. And, and part of the intended effects of preaching is that there is an experience of transformation through the gospel that we as a community have together. That, that I don't have when I just pop in headphones and listen to a sermon. Um, I am not being built into Christ with the church, with my church, um, in the way that leadership and speaking gifts are meant to in Ephesians 4. Um, and we'll talk more about that later, but that, that's a brief, brief answer to that question. Thank you. Yeah, good. So, so what this means is um, we are messengers. We are messengers. We are sent by God. We're not, we're not orators. Right? We're not people who are skilled in public speaking by profession. We are people who are skilled in gospel fidelity and passing on the gospel. So this, this produces a few qualities in us that I think, I think are important. Um, it, with this definition of preaching and with all this theology of preaching we've been talking about, it, it produces in us first confidence. It produces in us confidence. Um, not in ourselves, but in the message that we proclaim. That it is God's message that he has sent us to preach. And if that is true, we have a confidence that's not rooted in ourselves, not rooted in our ability, but that's rooted in God's word and God's gospel and God's calling. Um, but, but with that confidence is also humility. We, when we are called, when we are sent, when we preach, we do so only with the authority that's been given to us by Christ himself. You know, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ, an apostle of Christ. He's, he has this confident humility. His confident humility that, that he, is, he is commissioned by Christ and so he's able to proclaim the gospel, but he's humble in the fact that he's, he recognizes that he himself is in need of that exact same gospel. Um, but it, it also produces in us, I think, a desire to preach in such a way that it is compelling to those who hear. 
you know, if what if who we are are heralds of the good news, then we want to be heralds of the good news, who who herald the the message in a compelling way. Second um, Timothy two fifteen, we we appropriately and rightly handle the word of truth because we don't want to be ashamed. We 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 handle seriously and accurately the text that we're preaching. Um, or 2 Timothy 2.5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. He's talking about the person who is a minister of the gospel, who is a soldier for the gospel. He's a soldier, he's an athlete, he's a farmer. The, the picture of the athlete is one of exhaustion. Right? He, he trains hard, he competes hard, he becomes exhausted, he strives hard, he keeps trying to get better at what he's doing. I think that this, this idea of us being an appointed herald produces confidence, produces humility, and I think a desire for skill. Desire for skill in what we're doing. We, we desire to be skilled both in the, the understanding of the text and rightly handily and appropriately using the text, but also in the way we proclaim the message of the gospel itself in a compelling way. Consider also 2 Timothy 2 later on when he's talking about what it looks like to be a preacher, a worker, a pastor who's approved by God. Look, look, at, look at how he describes it in verses 20 through 21. Now in a great house, they're not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some of honorable use, some of dishonorable, dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master's house, ready for every good work. It's pretty, he's telling us Timothy, the, the next generation of pastor, that I think, I think this definition uh, produces in us not just a desire, confidence, not just humility, not just a desire for skill, but a desire for purity, our holiness. A desire that we would be fit for the master's service. Again, uh, to quote Jeff Perswell here, he said this, we can't expect our preaching before people to be more than our private life before God. Uh, that part of preaching, remember we, we talked about the importance of logos, ethos, and pathos. Part of it is that our lives show what it looks like to be transformed by the gospel so that we become a compelling example of the gospel implications that we're proclaiming. And that is why we preachers of the gospel, but we are first people who need the gospel. 
And that's, we, we run back to the gospel time and time again because we, like Paul, say, who is sufficient for these things? I, I am the least worthy person to be preaching the gospel. I am the chief of sinners. But Christ, Christ has called me. So I time and time again run back to Christ, run back to the gospel. And from there, I receive the purity and holiness that I need to live a life worthy of the gospel worthy of preaching the gospel. Good. Any any questions about that or any other thoughts? I had a question. Mm-hmm. There's a book I read sometime back by Stuart Oliot on preaching. Uh, I think he uses another word um, bearing witness. What would you think about that? Would you say that that's a major aspect of our preaching? Yeah, I, I see where he got that. Um, it was Barry Webb, you said, is that right? Yeah, Barry Webb. Yeah, he, yeah, he's a good, he's a good pastor, um, or, or, or a good preacher. Yeah, I think... I mean, certainly Paul, part of Paul's ministry was that he 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 claimed to have seen the risen Christ and bears witness of the risen Christ, right? Yeah, I have to think more about that and maybe maybe work that into a definition somehow. That's helpful. Good. Yeah, good idea, Brian. I appreciate that. Yeah, James. Yeah, I was thinking, so the appointed messenger makes sense in our context um, of Sunday mornings, but I was wondering, could you point us to some Bible verses that talk about how preaching has to be done by an appointed messenger? Yes. Um, yeah. Good call. And would that include, I like... Think. If, um, would appointed be like, let's say, Michael Granger, he's an appointed messenger. If he asked one of us to preach one Sunday, wouldn't we be appointed because he's appointed by, or appointed by him? Like, I'm just struggling with what that means, too. Yeah. This gets into, I was developing a lesson on calling, and, um... I just felt like we just didn't have time to go into what calling is, but... In short, I think I think you you have two two kinds of calling that you see patterned in the New Testament. One is an internal calling, and so uh, Paul says, if anyone desires the office of an overseer, if anyone wants to be a pastor, he desires a good thing. So there's a sense, internal sense, of desiring to be a pastor, to be someone who preaches the word. Um, and we would say that that, even though it's, it's felt internally, it, it comes from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's a calling similar to Paul's where he says that um, I was not called by men, but I was called by God. And he's, he's overwhelmingly convinced of that. And I think that we see a pattern in church history of, of men who, although they haven't seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, since this internal call 
that, that is similar to Paul saying, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Right? This, they, they resonate with, with ideas of desiring, strongly desiring the office of a pastor. And we would we call that the, the sense of an internal call. But there's, I think there's also a pattern in Scripture of an external call. So the, the external calling would be, um, again, we would see that in Paul telling Timothy, remember the gift that was given to you at the laying on of hands. Uh, similar language is used in Acts chapter 13 with Paul and Barnabas being commissioned out. Um, that there, there seems to be a sense in which the leadership of the church recognizes and approves certain men and commissions them and sends them out in this, a similar pattern to what Christ did with his disciples in, in Acts 10. That before he sent them out, I'm sorry, not Acts 10, Matthew 10, before he sent them out to preach, yes, they were his disciples, but they had not received an external calling um, that later on is, is passed on from the apostles to their followers, um, to the members of the church and the leadership gifts of the church. Um, so, so I do think, so there would be some people who would, who would look at this very strictly, who would say that unless you're ordained, you're not actually preaching. So there'd be some people in, in like more, like very reformed circles, um, very like when I say very reform, you, you know what I mean. Like the guys who, uh, like if you cut them, they bleed. John Calvin, right? Like, like those are the kind of guys I'm talking about who who are always like you know the kind of guys who are who are always talking about how I'm more reformed than everyone else, um, and and you're less reformed than me because of these reasons. Like those kinds of guys, um, those in those circles in those camps. Um, there would be an emphasis of unless you're ordained, you're not actually doing preaching. And there could be a case made for that, I think, from the Puritans also. But they had such a high view of ordination that if there was not a public um, recognition from the church that you are called and you are gifted uh, and you are qualified, then you have not yet begun to preach. Because you have not been appointed and sent out, I I think I think that's a little bit too narrow of a understanding of what preaching is. That I, I think that uh, like James alluded to, that someone who's not ordained yet, um, with the approval of ordained elders, can can preach at a church and it be called preaching. I think oh I forget what the uh, the word is. Oh, I think I think guys like uh, I think I think guys in these camps would say that they, they give encouraging words or something like that. That would be the word, the phrase they would use. They don't preach; they give encouraging words or something like that. I can't remember exactly the phrase they use. Uh, I, I'm just not convinced of that in scripture, but but I do think there's a sense in which calling is sensed and confirmed um, and ordination should happen um, or um, or there's an ordained elder who uh, who invites you to preach uh, in an approved way yeah does that make sense
So, so what, what this protects us from, this idea of internal and external calling and approved appointed messengers, um, is that it, it protects us from the guy who, the, the New Testament doesn't have a, a category, I think, for somebody who is a self, who is self-appointed, just going out and doing his own thing. Um, there's, it's always with local church approval and being commissioned with local church authority. But that's sourced in the fact that God selects certain people. It's not sourced in the fact that the church creates pastors and preachers, but the church is gifted in pastors and preachers, and they recognize those who God has uniquely gifted and called and given that internal sense of calling to you that's confirmed by the external calling. Yeah, I hope that helps. Yeah, thank you. It's a good question. It's a very good question. It's one that we can talk about for quite a while, actually, and a lot of people do talk for, for quite a while about it. Any other questions about this definition of preaching?